Europe Digest podcast. I'm William Law, editor of the Digest, and my guest today is Tariq Megarisi, a policy fellow with the North Africa and Middle East program at the European Council on Foreign Relations. Our conversation is about recent gains by Libya's internationally recognized government of national accord, the GNA, against the warlord Halifa Haftar, who has been besieging the capital Tripoli for more than a year. Tarek, welcome back to uh, Arab Digest Podcasts. Well, it's my pleasure to be here again. Thank you for inviting me back. Last week, uh, Siraj's GNA forces took control of seven towns northwest of Tripoli, including three on the Mediterranean coast, and uh, they had some successes in the air as well, shooting down drones. How significant are these gains? How should we treat them? How should we look at these successes of the uh, GNA forces against Haftar? I mean, first things first, I think we have to be to be careful to not get carried away with ourselves. This war has had a lot of ups and downs. And, you know, there, there's a cliche that's emerged in Libya that there is no military solution. So, you know, these gains that were made, especially if we go back a couple of weeks to the the capturing of the towns on the Mediterranean coastline, which you mentioned, Sabrata and Surman, this is really significant. Um, and I don't think that anything like this has happened from the GNA side since they captured uh, Kharian, which was a town which served as Haftar's forward operating base. Uh, and this was in June last year. And at the time, you know, everybody said, well, this is a huge achievement. Uh, the war must be finishing sometime soon. You know, Haftar is defeated and so on and so forth. And, you know, a year later, we're still here. And that's because that was the last offensive that they made. This time round, things do seem to be a bit different. Again, you know, these gains, especially in, in the west of the country, are really significant because you now have this big contiguous block from the Tunisian border all the way to, you know, to Misrata as well, if we count uh, the gains that were made the week after on the coastal road in the town of Garabulli. You know, and this contiguous block of land is a very useful asset to have. Um, and so in that sense, it's a really significant achievement. I think if we look at the momentum as well, that seems slightly more promising um, from the GNA's perspective in the sense that they might be able to carry it on. But I think they should be careful of celebrating too soon. Um, whilst, you know, this all important link between Haftar's stronghold of Tarhuna and Tripoli survives, uh, because we all know that that Haftar and uh, the United Arab Emirates and Egypt are, are here in a zero-sum game and they are always more than happy to to escalate and to ratchet up the, the seriousness of the conflict uh, in order to maintain the upper hand. Now, you mentioned that uh, aside from that one offensive last June that the GNA has taken pretty much of a defensive posture that is sort of holding the line, uh, if you will, but now they've, they've gone on the offensive and, and quite boldly. Why the change and, and how influential has Turkey been in the shift? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that the story that you just described is really the story of, of Turkey's intervention in Libya and the relationship between Turkey and the Tripoli government. I mean, the attack on Ghariyan last year was hugely influenced by Turkey from a strategic perspective and also this kind of I mean, let, let's call it an integrated attack, for want of a better term, whereby you have different forces that are advancing undercover from um, drone strikes and, you know, this whole interplay between 
the aerial and the ground forces. Um, and then the, the GNA didn't launch any more offensives because really the Turks went home. And, you know, the, the drones that they had were destroyed by Emirati drones whilst they were sitting on the, on the airstrip in Maitiga um, or elsewhere. And, you know, the Turks have their own interests for Libya, uh, most crucially for the Eastern Mediterranean. And they used uh, the desperation of the Libyans to, to try and get their foot into the door over there. Uh, I don't want to go too far down the rabbit hole of the Eastern Mediterranean, but to cut that long story short, you know, the Turks came back once they had signed this memorandum of understanding with the Tripoli government. And we've slowly and steadily seen an uptick in, in Turkish support since then. You know, they very quickly established a, an, an operations room in Misrata. Uh, they have shipped in armored vehicles, advanced weaponry, such as laser-guided anti-tank missiles. Um, and the drones have been the big win for the GNA. And it's not just the, the pervasiveness of Turkey's drones over Haftar-controlled territory over the last two to three weeks, which have been devastating for Haftar and his... Um, his ability to resupply and rearm his his forces and really to keep the war effort going, but also the air defences that they established in Tripoli and Misrata, which, which I think more crucially killed the Emirati aerial superiority and killed Haftar's aerial superiority. And I, I don't think Haftar recognised the seriousness of it. You know, he was happy to just shell Tripoli instead of bomb Tripoli. But when you don't have these kind of precision airstrikes coming in on a regular basis then all of a sudden it means that your troops can mobilize again. You can mobilize equipment, you can mobilize supplies um, to launch your own offensives. So there's been this kind of coalescence of, of different factors that have allowed the GNA to, to you know, go back on the offensive and to make their superior numbers count once more. What, uh, what does the GNA, GNA need to do to consolidate uh, these gains? What's the next step for them? I mean, militarily speaking, there are a few different roads that they could go down here. But from my understanding, it seems to be that they would like to to continue the offensive last week. Um, so there was an additional offensive to the one you mentioned, which captured those towns on the coast, where they moved towards Haftar's stronghold of Tarhuna. They attempted to encircle it, to cut it off from, from the Tripoli front lines. Um, and even to negotiate with another town just to the south of Tarhuna called Beni Walid to, you know, completely isolate Tarhuna, to isolate Haftar in western Libya, um, which would, you know, really spell the end of his offensive and his attempt to take Tripoli. So I guess that they need to continue that strategy to, to really cut off the south Tripoli front from Tarhuna, to redivert Tarhuna's forces back to their town. And then it you know, it, it depends a lot on, on how things progress from there. You know, will the GNA, um, will other societal groups in Libya be able to exploit the divisions that are in Tarhuna in order to, to, to try and reach a diplomatic settlement with them? Or are they going to have to try to invade? And I think that could be very pro problematic, um, especially after, you know, some stories had come out uh, and videos were released from when the other Haftar-controlled towns, Sarman and Sabrata, were taken, of violations taking place. So, you know, stories like that, they put the fear of God in people. Um, and so they actually might spur a very divided Tarhuna to become more unified if the GNA tried to push too hard. 
Um, so it all depends on, on how exactly they're going to play it and how delicate they can be with their diplomacy. Now, now you mentioned violations uh, in the towns that were taken from Haftar's troops. What, what sort of violations? I mean, kind of revenge attacks, um, destruction of property. Uh, in in Surman was the most worrying, where you had a prison break. Um, you know, you know, you had somewhere between the high three hundreds to the low four hundreds uh, of prisoners um, from Libya's CID who were who were sprung from jail, effectively. And this is you know all stripes of people, from your common criminal to to more terrorist type of individuals. Um, and that was deeply disturbing. And to give credit to the GNA's Ministry of Interior, they did try to make a big show afterwards of saying, you know, this is a, a coalition of forces. Some of them are not entirely under our control. And they tried to deploy uniformed police to the streets afterwards to try and show that they will restore some semblance of normality. But, you know, some things you can't undo. And the story of that prison break and uh, the videos that came out of the retribution attacks and so on um, is something that will stick in the memory. But, you know, this these are attacks that have been exploited and, and, uh, and blown up by Haftar's media. Um, so I think it's just important to say for the record and, you know, for the for the interests of balance that even in the attacks last weekend where a significant number of, of Haftar's men were taken prisoner, you know, over 100 people, I think that the GNA's own propaganda and, and PR machine tried very hard to show that, you know, these prisoners will be taken care of um, and, you know, they're not just going to be summar summarily executed. And this is in stark contrast to, to some of the own crimes we've seen from Haftar's forces when they do take uh, GNA forces or when they do capture people who are unfortunately stuck between the lines during an offensive. So this is a, a messy situation. Um, and if the GNA, you know, want to push forward these credentials of being the government of all of Libya, they should try to to make it as unmessy as possible and to make it as clean as possible and professional as possible going forward, as difficult as that might be, given the re realities of the Libyan situation and the the psychological impact of the last year of warfare. Now, Haftar, someone on the back foot, what should we expect from him in terms of trying to stem this offensive? I mean, from Haftar in particular, we've, we've already seen what we can expect from him. Every time he suffers a defeat, he seems to take out his frustration on the people of Tripoli. Um, and there are continued uh, shelling attacks, um, grab missiles, tanks firing into the city, uh, th th this is his uh, retribution, as it were. Um, you know, in addition to this, over the last few weeks, although it came before the GNA offensives, there have been power cuts, there have been water cuts, and there's been the targeting of Tripoli's main hospital, uh, which came, you know, just after the the calls for restrictive measures because of COVID-19. There seems to be a wider strategy at play to break the morale and to spread a terror amongst um, the civilians in Western Libya. And so I think we can see a continuation of that for as long as he can keep the South Tripoli front armed. I think the more dangerous escalation is not from from Haftar, but from the UAE and, and Egypt. You know, for them, this is not so much about Libya and Haftar since Turkey has gotten involved. This is a bigger issue for them now. You know, it's taken on the existential qualities of a of a regional crisis and a regional war for them as they're battling for influence with Turkey. 
So I don't think that they will happily or easily surrender ground to Turkey on this issue. And that could actually lead us down a far more dangerous road, which is that the UAE and Egypt start deploying advanced aircraft to to really enforce aerial superiority. And I think that the Turks are concerned about that as well. And they've been doing their own drills in the Mediterranean recently with F-16s. Um, but, you know, while the Turks might might have a contingency plan for that, for the people of Libya, the prospect of, you know, advanced aircraft from both sides bombing everything that moves is must be a terrifying scenario. Mm. You know, if you look at Haftar, um, this, this, this offensive running for a year now, he's sustaining now significant losses. Is there any sense that his key backers, you mentioned Egypt, the United Arab Emirates, but there's France, there's Russia, that, that they are looking at him and, and perhaps growing weary of, of his uh, lack of success? You know, you, you get these stories that come out periodically, usually every time Haftar really messes up, that says, you know, the Emirates are, are fed up and they're looking for alternatives. The Egyptians are fed up, they're looking for alternatives. And sure, there, there's some element of truth in that, but... You know, actions speak louder than words, as the old uh, proverb goes. And their support for Haftar does not wane. In fact, they get stronger and stronger. Um, you know, that that might be the issue of too much commitment to one actor. So, you know, they feel like they have to keep doubling down rather than losing everything. It could be that, you know, they're really not concerned if if they take a few hits along the way because they still think overall they're winning. And it could just be that, you know, Haftar being the character that he is, has made sure that there are no replacements for him, that the UAE and others could easily hold up. And so he becomes too important to them. But I, I don't think that's the most crucial aspect of this. You know, this is a bit of speculation um, and from my own experiences, but I think Haftar has really benefited over the years from you know, this air of inevitability around his project. Many um, people in Western capitals and elsewhere, you know, for them, it's a familiar tale. You have an Arab general uh, or somebody from a military establishment who's fighting against protesters, who's fighting against other forces. And, you know, he might do some, some very messy things along the way, uh, but eventually he wins. Um, you know, this speaks volumes about the lack of... Um, about the lack of attention to detail of the Libyan context and also the kind of Orientalism that that remains in many capitals. But I think that now that air of inevitability should be well and truly dispelled. You know, if Turkey hasn't shown that it's going to win the war on behalf of the GNA, it should have shown that it can match whatever escalation the UAE um, will, will throw. So no matter what occurs from here, Haftar will not will not win this war in any clean or manageable way, which means that for the rest of the world, you know, those who aren't behind Haftar, who aren't um, playing another interest or policy in Libya, there should be two, two clear paths. Either you continue to sit back and watch as a series of devastating escalations, keep taking the country further and further down the Syria-type path, or, you know, they can try to take the, the opportunity of a rare stalemate and this awareness that you know, Haftar's project is no longer in inevitable. In fact, quite the opposite. It's just a massive problem, an obstacle to to peace in Libya uh, and try to do something about it. Um, it's interesting you make the point about Turkey because, of course, Russia was very influential in keeping Assad in place 
in Syria. The Turks could presumably play the same role. But I did want to ask you about, well, Russia and, and the whole mercenary situation. Uh, could mercenaries swing it back to uh, in, in Haftar's favor? The longer that this war goes on, the more foreign mercenaries you see in, in Haftar's offensives and on the front lines. Um, you know, the the story of the day for the last week and a half has actually been the, Su the Sudanese mer mercenaries who seem to be getting bored um, on the front and posting pictures on Facebook. But yeah, the the Russian mercenaries who were deployed towards the end of last year were the game changer for Haftar. You know, even when the Turks left um, and the Emirati drone strikes um, you know, were incredibly effective, it was only the the deployment of, of Russian snipers and teams on the ground that actually allowed Haftar to make meaningful gains. And that, I think, is very telling because with all of the different nationalities and groups who are fighting in Libya, you have very few professional soldiers who know what they're doing. And I think that's what distinguishes Turkey and Russia from the rest of the people in the room. And I think that the Russians know this, despite being embarrassed by Haftar in Moscow back in January, when he refused their, their ceasefire deal, their men haven't left. They're still there. And there are other forms of Russian support, be this helping to facilitate Syrian mercenaries from Assad-controlled territory, be this helping to facilitate transfers of Russian equipment, um, such as air defense systems uh, and you know anti-tank missiles of their own. So I think that the Russians are, are playing a long game in Libya, and they're not going to go... They're, they're, they're not going to go anywhere just because Haftar is starting to lose. I think that their, their interests always outlived Haftar, but Haftar is a very useful vehicle for them to grow their influence. So I think that they will stay there for the time being. If the advantages that Turkey has supplied to the GNA, namely air defences and aerial superiority, can be taken aback, then sure, Russian mercenaries can once again be effective on the front lines. But yeah, it's a problem that will get worse and worse, I fear. Let us take the best case scenario, if you will, from a GNA perspective. Let's say they vanquish Haftar. The GNA then emerges as the victor. Could the GNA reunite the country? Do they have that ability? I mean, what does what does victory mean in this sense? So let's say you know even the GNA surprise everybody and they uh, they go into Tarhuna. It falls far quicker than expected, or a deal is cut. Um, and, you know, there, let, let's say that there aren't any more attacks of retribution on the population of Tarhuna and Western Libya is once again a contiguous block. Um, Haftar still controls the east with an iron fist. Uh, the south is still nominally loyal to Haftar and he's been building influence there um, over the last six, seven months. And Haftar still controls the oil resources, not just the fields, but also the terminals. So you end up in a situation whereby you're once again confronted with two options. Either you try to play the diplomatic role, you try to engage with the groups that make up Haftar's coalition. So the tribal forces, the ex-regime forces, um, and so on and so forth. And you, you, you try to move forward with them in a new structure um, or whatever you want to call it. And the cost of that is to drop Haftar. Or you continue the war. Uh, you try and take the oil terminals back from Haftar. Um, you try and take the oil fields back. You try and spread GNA influence. 
which means that you kind of have a cold war that will go on in the south and a sporadic hot war that will pop up around oil installations. And I think that would be a new and very destructive chapter in the war. So it's, there is not a definitive way out of this, in my opinion, except for the diplomatic way. And even that I have to recognize a slightly uh, naive approach, as there are no groups right now who seem to be conciliatory in Libya. Yes, well, that uh, brings me nicely then to my final question, which is, uh, who's going to negotiate a peace process? Who's going to bring these various factions and parties to the table? It seems that everyone has skinny in the game, has, has blood in their hands. So who can actually get people around a negotiating table? Yeah, that's the million-dollar question right there. Um, and, you know, that... That shows that there are two layers to this that we need to unwind. There's the international layer, which also shows no signs of, of winding down. And, you know, with the strong introduction of Turkey, it's going to perhaps become even more difficult to try and mediate with the likes of the UAE and Egypt, especially as Turkey now has the upper hand. So you need somebody who can speak between those two, um, who can try and unify the rest of European interests and perhaps bring in some kind of great power guarantor. And if that won't be Europe, it's got to be the United States. Um, and if not, you know, Turkey's going to try and build their own coalition and use Russia as their guarantor. So that right there is one very difficult mess to unwind to try and find a mediator. And from the Libyan perspective, you know, there are, there are signs of optimism and there are signs of pessimism. Alongside the offensive that took place last week, you know, I mentioned that there was diplomatic outreach to Beni Walid uh, from the city of Misrata, which has been the main kind of military force under the GNA. And we've seen diplomatic approaches from them over the course of this war to Tarhuna, to Beni Walid and to others. And we have seen on a local level since, since the revolution happened that there have been local ceasefires and local pieces that have been made. Um, and that are quite effective. And so, you know, there could be an, an, an opportunity to try and stitch these things together, these local peace processes. I think that's something that requires some form of, of international assistance, as it might be too difficult to do under the circumstances whereby you've just had a year of war. And it, it's not just the physical acts of war, it's all of the polarization and propaganda and hate speech. Um, and the psychological trauma that accompanies war, which makes reconciliation very difficult. It seems to me that, you know, under the current paradigm whereby we have the UN support mission, and this is no kind of denigration of them, but, you know, because of the, the great international game happening behind them, that support mission has been continuously undermined and unable to do its job. But at the same time, independent states aren't really willing to to sponsor a reconciliation process or sponsor a process of their own for fear of undermining the UN publicly. You know, it's fine to do it in co co covertly, but to do it out in the open seems to be the wrong thing to do. So unless that dynamic can be fixed slightly, whereby either somebody can protect the UN to, you know, reestablish their credibility and be an independent mediator um, and really try to enable and upgrade these local peace processes or an individual country tries to take ownership and tries to sponsor a process of their own. And we did see Algeria try and do this in late 2017, but 
you know, for their own reasons, I don't think that's likely to happen again anytime soon. Um, you know, if we we've we've seen attempts over the last few months for the Algerians to try and reestablish themselves diplomatically on Libya, but I think it's clear that they have too many of their own problems, too many of their own internal divisions, to really withstand the, you know, the international tidal wave that comes at you as soon as you try and deal with Libya. So. A rather bleak scenario then continues for Libya. Yeah, unfortunately. Um, you know, I've been doing the the kind of policy analysis work for a while. And whenever I, I meet someone for the first time, they always ask me what my what my perspectives are for, for Libya for the year. What are your predictions? What do you think will happen? And, you know, I've been saying the same thing for far too long, that the general trajectory is, is downwards. Um, and this year is no different. We could see huge escalations in the type of weaponry deployed in Libya's war. We can see a continuation of this deeply harmful um, and devastating war on the Libyan society and, and, and country. Um, but there are always opportunities to turn things around. It just depends whether anybody has the, has the political will and the in initiative to go forward and take them. And this counts as much for Libyan actors as it does for international actors. Um, and as I said previously, what Turkey has shown over the last month should be sufficient cause for everybody to stop hedging their bets, saying, let's look and see which way the wind blows in Libya and to just come down hard for an immediate ceasefire. And then, you know, under that more conducive environment to peace, try to figure out the process, try to figure out how to make it more resilient by you know creating local ceasefires by talking between communities perhaps even resurrecting the national conference process that that Salame started and that I think had a really good foundation Salame the previous UN envoy yeah sorry for not explaining myself um but yeah and so these are the opportunities to turn things around and you know the the question that hangs heavy is whether they will be taken Tarek thank you very much it's my pleasure thank you again for having me on Thank you for listening to the Arab Digest podcast. My guest today was Tariq Megarisi, a policy fellow with the North Africa and Middle East program at the European Council on Foreign Relations. We welcome your comments. If you're not already a member and you want to join the club, you can find out how by going to arabdigest.org. I'm William Law, editor of the Arab Digest. Essential reading from independent sources.